You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hi there, I'm Rain Wilson. And I'm Reza Aslan, and I am stimulating my God spot right now. Okay, I'm feeling really uncomfortable, and I'm about to sue you. No, dude, my brain, man. I'm stimulating my brain. Oh, my brain. Okay, well, I can get into that. So, Rain, tell me about a transcendent experience that you've had recently. Um, I've had a couple of truly transcendent experiences in my life. I would say that first and foremost, I've seen Radiohead live, I think, five times. Mm, yeah, I'd say five to me. And um, there was one time, I think it was the second time I saw them at the Hollywood Bowl. It really was the closest thing to a religious experience that I've ever had. Now, I'm a religious person. I am a card-carrying member of a religion. And yet, oddly enough, my most religious experience, my most most spiritual transcendent experience was at this Radiohead concert. I mean, I knew the songs so well. The light show was amazing. The sound was incredible. I was there with some friends. We all loved Radiohead equally. And there's something about their music that is, it's Mm trance-inducing. Yeah. And it's also like there is such a yearning uh, in their lyrics and in their music that it um, it really tugs at my heart. And like just something like, a, you know, a thousand, two thousand people singing along with the lyrics. And I really just felt for a super long period of time completely out of my body. I didn't have any concerns, anxieties, cares. I didn't feel like Rain Wilson, I just felt like I was in some kind of ocean of bliss. Yeah, dude, I've had a similar experience at Radiohead concerts. I think probably if I were to talk about my clearest transcendent experience, uh, it was, I guess I had just graduated from undergrad, I think. And I was just, you know, I was kind of in a depressed place and I was driving around the country. I literally just packed up a car with a guitar 
and uh, a sleeping bag You're and such a, a tent. Hippie. Look at yeah. you. Yeah, and just drove around. I made it all the way to Canada. And this was this actually happened uh, in your neck of the woods in Rainier. Okay, it was in Rainier. I remember I was hiking along, and I was there's like there was this little river, and I just decided, you know, I'm. It's not like I've got anyone waiting back at the campsite for me or something. I'm just gonna follow this river until I find its source. So I, I was following it, and you know, it became a thinner, and then it became like a trickle, and it just kept getting higher and higher and higher, and then I saw the source, and it was this uh, glacier, this gigantic glacier that had. Um, kind of like broken in the middle. So it, it formed a V, uh-huh. basically. And it was melting, at, you know, little drops at a time. But this 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 thing was this mighty river down where I was camped. Yeah. And I just kind of sat there for a little bit and, and meditated and just, you know, started ugly crying for no reason. Um, and it was a deeply transcendent experience it makes me think you know you've had transcendent experiences i've had transcendent experiences i think everyone has sure experience of nature the experience of music mm-hmm. the love watching your, your a child be born yeah. you know all of those child's things. first steps for uh, instance yeah and is is the thing that's happening is it something that's out there that I'm tapping into? Right. Some field, yeah. some energy, some... Right. Or is it in here? To put it in its, uh, you know, most basic and, and perhaps inelegant way, does God exist in my brain? Hmm. Maybe he's inside all of us, but not in any kind of metaphorical sense, but literally. But literally. Yeah. Yeah. In our neurochemistry and uh, our nerves. So we we touched a little bit uh, on this same thing in our episode on memory. Mm-hmm. Um, God, transcendence, connected to our brains, what happens in our brains. Fortunately, we have an amazing uh, guest today that might be able to help shed some light on this very same topic. Dr. Andrew Newberg is an expert in neurotheology. Which I'd never heard of before until I this moment. Know that, I think he just made that up. Neurotheology, that's... <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> the study of the brain and religion. He's director of research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and a professor at Thomas Jefferson University. He does. He teaches religious studies and uh, is a neuroscientist and researcher, an author of 10 books, including one of my favorites. And it's one of the first books we discussed when we started talking about doing this podcast. And I really enjoyed it. It's called Why God Won't Go Away. And it's uh, the link between God and the brain. Um, and it's it's scientific. Don't worry. It's not like um, what the bleep do we know or the secret. It's not some like <laughs> like hippy dippy claptrap. Uh, it's it's for real. So we've got a we've a got legit a, scientist, a legit scientist here with us. So I'm Dr. Andrew Newberg. I'm the research director at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Uh, Over the past 25 to 30 years, I have actually been doing a lot of research looking at how the brain works in a variety of different uh, neurological and psychological problems. But my real focus over the last 25 years has been the study of various religious and spiritual experiences and practices, practices like meditation and prayer, uh, mystical experiences, and how that all is connected with the human brain. 
Okay, so this is like the kind of stuff that religious nerds like Rain and me Woo-hoo. we uh-huh. go crazy for, right? I mean, la, 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 la. it like, gives us tingles. I've, it's like I feel the, it. the equivalent of like the new Star Wars coming out. Exactly. It's like, yeah, let's talk yeah. religion in the brain. Right. This is the new Avenger movie <laughs> for uh, us. But this is, oh, yeah. Where does a mystical experience live neurologically? So let's talk about this. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I, I think I think at this point it's pretty much accepted, right? I don't know if there's any any more questions about the fact that the religious experience is a neurological phenomenon. That's kind of a fact now, right? Well, certainly when you think about religious experiences, there is something going on in the brain. Now, I I tend to take a bit of a neutral stance into exactly what is going on or how it's happening. Um, You know, our brain reacts to the world around us as well as kind of generates our own sense of reality. So when somebody is praying and they experience God's presence in their their world— Certainly, there's something going on in the brain, whether God is there doing that to their brain or whether it is something that is purely a manifestation of the brain is a very fascinating uh, and problematic philosophical and theological question. But we can certainly talk about what's going on in the brain when people have these experiences. Yeah, yeah. We're just talking about the how right now. Yeah, We'll, we'll right. get to the why later. Yeah, okay. I, I don't see good. God's fingers at work in the brain, you know, making things pulse or something like that. But <laughs> it, it is good to know that there are certain areas of the brain that light up when you're having a mystical or transcendent experience. Yes. But of course, the thing exactly. that Rain and I always talk about is why is this controversial? Where else would the religious experience exist except yeah. in the brain? I mean, every right. every experience you have ever had in your life without exception is in exists the brain. in the brain, so why wouldn't right. the spiritual one also be in the brain? Yeah. I guess for some people, like the Richard Dawkins of the world, uh, the fact that it is it is an experience located in the brain somehow delegitimizes the experience, and so I think for some religious people, they're they're less prone to accept the sort of biological circumstances of their religious right. experience because they think doing so would just give ammunition to people to just simply delegitimize the experience. What do you what do you say to that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I maybe another uh, example would be, you know, feeling love for your spouse or your child. I mean, obviously again, that is experienced in your brain. It doesn't mean that your child doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that you don't have the love. You do feel all those things and those feelings are extraordinarily important in a person's life. So uh, I agree. I mean, I think it's it's valuable to be able to see what's going on in the brain to help us understand that, but it does not uh, inherently delegitimize it. Um, but it does. It, it's a piece of information that is part of this larger question about the reality of these experiences and what they may mean for people. Folks, is the piece of plastic in your wallet doing enough for you? Because with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card, you can start building credit with everyday purchases and on-time payments. You see, with Credit Builder, members can increase their credit history with no annual fees or interest. And having a good credit score can mean getting better car loan rates or renting apartments easier or just bragging rights around the dinner table. So continue your credit journey with Chime. Sign up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at chime.com slash milkshake. That's chime.com slash milkshake. 
The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by Stride Bank N.A. pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Chime checking account, and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Regular on-time payment history can have a positive impact on your credit score. Impact to score may vary, and some user scores may not improve. Hey, uh, Rain, what do you think of my shirt? A nice shirt, Reza. What do you think of my shirt? That's a really nice shirt. Yeah, we got some nice shirts on. Why is that, do you think? Because we got it from Buck Mason. Folks, we all have our favorite go-tos, right? Shirts, sweaters, jeans, stuff you wear all the time, and then most of the stuff just sits in your closet. Well, I was getting dressed this morning and realized my go-tos are from Buck Mason. So did Reza. Buck Mason's clothes are second to none. They're timeless and never go out of style. Everything I own fits great right out of the box. Becomes my new favorite already. Look at this. It's so soft. It's really it's so soft. Green. I love this. I mean, this feel it's it looks like a t-shirt from the outside, but it feels like a hug. They make all the essentials, and I basically have one of everything. They make jeans, I've got jeans. They make shirts. I got like three of those Buck Mason shirts. They got a jacket. I wore this like cool black wool jacket the other day. Like, yeah, I looked good. So once you try Buck Mason, they'll become your go-tos as well. Head over to buckmason.com slash milkshake and get a free t-shirt, guys. A free t-shirt with your first order. That's B-U-C-K-M-A-S-O-N dot com slash milkshake to get a free t-shirt with your first order. Buckmason.com slash milkshake. You make one other point, which I thought was really fascinating, which is that this kind of uh let's just say religious belief or religious experience, spiritual experience, whatever, um, that um, it is a functioning of the brain, but it it also in some way either assists in sort of other cognitive processes or like it's good for the brain. I mean, we all know that it's universal right. and in the brain. Why? We'll get to that. We have no idea. But, but, uh, but you're saying that it actually... Uh, assists the brain in some way uh, in its sort of normal, quote-unquote, non-spiritual functioning. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, whenever you're doing a practice like meditation, for example, there's a lot of, you're, you know, as you were saying, a lot of this is in the brain. So, where in the brain? Well, there's a lot of different elements to these experiences and these practices. There's cognitive elements. So, that includes concentrating. Maybe you're concentrating on a prayer. Maybe you're concentrating on an, uh, an image that you create in your mind. Maybe you're concentrating on a candle. But concentration is an important process. So, if you're if you've gotten very good at concentrating during meditation, what the research also shows is that you're probably going to be pretty good at concentrating on other things, concentrating on solving a problem at work, uh, taking a test if you're a student at school. So there, there, that's where the advantages can come in in terms of cognitive abilities. Uh, now, when it comes to the emotional aspect, that's another piece of this. Uh, when people meditate and pray, uh, that tends to be associated with reductions in anxiety, stress, uh, depression. And so when people are battling those kinds of issues in their lives, even if it's just normal anxiety or, or normal depression that you might have is, you know, because things haven't been going well for you or you're worried about, you know, getting fired at work or whatever, then engaging in these practices can have a benefit from that kind of a perspective as well. In fact, there's evidence to show that these practices help people to regulate their emotional response more effectively. So there's a lot of different ways in which religious and spiritual practices can
can ultimately be beneficial for people. And of course, if you you know start to get into the kind of the larger global uh, aspect of it, you know, if you're connected to a community of individuals, then you have the social interaction, the social support, and all of that has a benefit for our brain uh, as well as our body. So, so there's a lot of different ways in which these these practices can have a beneficial impact for for people. Yeah, this is the kind of shit that Rain says all the time. <laughs> Do I? Yeah, you say this all. You are constantly going on about how like religion is actually good for you. It makes you feel better. Oh, it makes you healthier. I mean, it makes you like you know. The amount of studies that have been done around the beneficial effects of meditation are you know innumerable. Mm-hmm. Um, prayer as well, but then compassion. also compassion yeah. and connection compassion. and community, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, which religion also gives you. And I imagine, but here's where here's so tell us what you've learned about what happens in the brain through these various spiritual experiences. And I like the way that you haven't lumped all spiritual experiences into one experience. There's, like you said, there's concentration is one. There's emotions is another one. I imagine like feeling connected is maybe another. There might be Mm -hmm. lots of different ways. It might evoke memories. There's lots of different ways that this... The, this experience might, you know, light up your brain like a like a pinball machine. But what have you specifically learned about how this stuff works in the gray matter itself? Sure. Well, so you, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the research that we have also done that's kind of led up to the imaging studies of, of the brain um, asks people to describe these experiences. And, and there is such tremendous diversity and multiplicity of these experiences. So there really is not just one way in which people have these experiences. And there are many different cognitive, emotional, experiential elements that become part of that. Now, when you extrapolate that to what's going on in the brain, we can start to look at which elements link up with different functions of the brain. So for example, we've already talked about concentration. Um, So if you begin to concentrate on a particular prayer or meditative practice, then what we see on the brain scans is that the concentrative areas of the brain, the frontal lobes, turn on. And so the frontal lobes become more active and that helps the person to concentrate more and more on the object of their practice. Uh, interestingly, it also helps to screen out other information. So, And that's also an important part of how our brain helps to concentrate. It's not just focusing on something, but screening out other things. In fact, that's why meditation may be good for people with like ADHD, because it helps you to concentrate, but it also helps you to screen out. Now, we've talked about the emotional processes. So when somebody has a very powerful emotional experience, uh, they feel intense compassion, love, joy, awe, then we expect to see changes in the emotional centers of the brain, the limbic system, uh, such as the uh, the amygdala, which a lot of people have heard of. And that, that turns on when something of very powerful emotions affects us. Could be good, could be bad. Um, but certainly if something of great motivational importance appears before us or we think about, you know, the meaning of God in our lives or something like that, then that turns on these emotional centers and that's part of why the person feels very intensely emotional about them. And then you also mentioned connectedness and this is another area that we've been particularly fascinated by. Um, that's a very common theme in a lot of these descriptions of these experiences, the sense of oneness, the loss of the sense of self, the feeling of connectedness with other people, with God, the universe, whatever it is. 
Um, and there's an area of our brain, the parietal lobe, which is located in the back of our brain, that usually takes our sensory information and helps us to create our sense of self. And what we have observed on brain scan studies is that this area during these experiences actually starts to quiet down. And that Ooh. makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense though, because if it normally turns on to give us our sense of self, then when the person loses their sense of self, the area should go the other way. It starts to quiet down and we lose that sense of self. We lose the, the boundary between ourself and the rest of the world or other people or God or the universe, whatever the person's experience is. And this is, again, a very common thing that we tend to see in these kinds of experiences. And you know, part of what I've learned from all of this is that there isn't just one part of the brain. There isn't one little area of the brain that turns on when you, know, you walk into church or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it's all these different parts that are, form a kind of network and how you utilize them, how you access them really depends on what you're doing and what you're experiencing. So if you don't have much of an emotional reaction, well, you're not gonna use your emotional centers very much. Uh, whereas if you do have a powerful emotional reaction, then we would expect to see that. This is fascinating, the loss of self thing. For thousands of years, the goal of mystics has been precisely to lose the, to self. Lose the self. I see that you did this study with the Buddhist Michael Bame. is that how you say his name? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and another aspect of reducing the parietal lobes is also losing your sense of time and place. So right. there's a, a timelessness yeah. and a placelessness Nirvana. and selflessness <laughs> in just right. reducing the activity in this one area of the brain. So is there are there exercises where we can all kind of like reduce the, the functioning of the parietal lobes and, and get a little closer to Nirvana? And does drugs help? <laughs> and well, that's a that's a whole other discussion to have, um, and and the answer is is very probably yes. Um, but um, uh, you know, obviously, practices like meditation can do that. But but people can find these kinds of processes through uh, a lot of different kinds of things. Uh, a lot of people come up to me and say, my spirituality is creativity, is is music, is art. And certainly, you know, a, a great musician can lose themselves as they get into the piece of music. Mm -hmm. uh, a great artist can lose themselves, you know, they become one with the sculpture, one with the painting, for example. My spirituality uh, is in podcasting. When I'm podcasting, no, probably, I completely right? <laughs> lose I am myself. I'm like surfing in the divine light, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned surfing. I, I've talked to people about, oh, yeah. you know, the experience that people have surfing, uh, athletes in the zone. Um, you know, so there, there are many examples where people kind of lose that sense of self. And that seems to be a very powerful experience, a very positive experience for people because you feel more connected to something that is greater than the self. So I'm going to go off topic a little bit here. And, you know, as I'm listening to you and as we're having this incredible discussion, I'm I'm kind of getting pissed off. Uh-oh. And, yeah. You don't no. want to make Rain angry. No, no. You won't like not, Rain. I wasn't trying to angry. <laughs> don't worry. I'm not going to bring up Trump. This, this, but this is about our society. So, um, when you know, when you raise kids, you start to see the world in a different way because you see that all the different ways that the world wants to attack our kids and get in their brains and in their consciousness and in their eyeballs and everything on television and the media on social media and advertising and marketing and, and in, in capitalist kind of merchandising is to 
to say this one thing, like, if you can satisfy yourself more, you will be happier. Mm -hmm. If you can get more stuff, if people can look at you for the stuff that you have, if they will like you for the stuff that you have, if you can do more to, you know, this whole thing right now about self-care. Like, yes, I get it. We should do some self-care. We shouldn't just treat ourselves like shit. We should get some sleep and get an occasional massage, whatever. But this whole thing like self-care, 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 goop, you know, all this stuff. Like, what lotions do we put on our anus in the morning? (laughs) Everything we're getting inundated with is take care of the self, promote the self, uplift the self, get more stuff for the self. This will make you happier. And it is exactly the opposite. Exact opposite. And, and it is exactly like 180 degrees scientifically proven to, to absolutely be wrong. Now, of course, some people are poor and they're hungry and they don't have a shirt and they want a shirt. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking no, about... get it. Peop- yeah. you, okay, you get what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I don't know what this has to do with the brain, but <laughs> it's interesting, this kind of whole bill of goods that people are being fed, especially young people, and oftentimes buy into. Like, oh, the more likes I get on Instagram, the more popular I'll be, the more status I'll have, and th- then I'll be more liked and then I'll be more happy. And we're right. getting unhappier and unhappier all the time. Right. Well, you know, I I think as with everything in the world, um, including the brain, there's always sort of the plus side and the minus side, and there's the good and the bad that comes with these things. And so, uh, as you said, I mean, obviously our brains are designed to protect the self. I mean, we have to eat, we have to, you know, we have to uh, survive. I mean, that's one of the main functions that the brain has for us is is self-maintenance. It helps to take care of ourselves. It helps us to eat, survive, communicate with others. And that is of fundamental importance to the brain. But on the other hand, uh, our brain also has the ability to connect with the world and to transcend it, uh, transcend itself in many ways. And so that is, you know, that is this sort of uh, conundrum, paradox, if you will, where we're kind of, you know, we want to feel connected to the world, but we want to protect the self. And it, it's it's a challenge for the brain. I mean, it's like it's like being angry and happy. I mean, sometimes you have to be angry at people, but ideally, you know, to sometimes you have to be angry at your child because they did something wrong, and you need to correct that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you have to show them love, and so there's there's always a balance. If you do it one way, you know, too much one way or the other, uh, it winds up being a problem. And you know, even going back to our discussion about these spiritual experiences and that feeling of connectedness well you know part we one of the statements that my colleagues and I used to talk about was that that the practices are kind of these morally neutral technologies and so if you use this kind of ritualistic meditative practice for bad things well it's, it it's very good at helping people to see the world in a very negative way. I mean, cults, uh, terrorism, and things like that. The you know, secret. The, that, I think that's what the, the secret. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, the, I remember the secret. I never I never read that watch. I don't know. <laughs> there is the downside of it. And and so, so, you know, it's not just feeling connected, but it's what you feel connected to. And if you just feel connected to a group that is very exclusive, then you're going to be angry and hateful and vengeful to people who are outside of that group. Whereas if your group is all of humanity, then you do feel compassion and love and warmth forever and inclusiveness for everyone. Well, that's, so, that's so, well said. So yeah, so yeah. it's not just doing these things, but it's how one does these things. 
So, Rain, lately I've been getting all these emails from uh, my mother-in-law. Uh-oh. I know. It, so- it sounds worrying. Like, I, you're immediately like, why would you be getting regular emails from your mother-in-law? But I'll tell you why. It's because I signed her up for StoryWorth. I-, I mean, every time she answers one of these StoryWorth questions, it's like I feel closer to her. I feel, I feel like a, a, a good son-in-law. StoryWorth, folks, it's an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories and preserves them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. They have lots of unique prompts like... What's some of the best advice your mother ever gave you? Or if you were to do it all over again, what would you do differently? And why did you let your daughter marry Reza, et cetera? (laughs) I'm sure you had a lot of interesting questions that were posed to your mother-in-law. And listen, Mother's Day, people, it's right around the corner. It's right around the corner. This is a great Mother's Day gift. This is what happens. After a year of sending all these questions and, and accumulating the answers, StoryWorth then compiles it all into uh, like this beautiful keepsake book and then you can add photos to it and then the whole family can share it for generations. So, you know, StoryWorth, it's not often that I get to say this sentence, but uh, thanks for making me a better husband. So give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash milkshake. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash milkshake to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash milkshake. Hey, if you've ever recently bought anything, you've probably noticed that prices have gone up on everything. I mean, everything. It's crazy. I bought some crackers the other day. They were like $6, $7. And also on essentials like gas, groceries, utilities. That's why it's great to use GoodRx. GoodRx is free and easy to use and works whether you do or do not have insurance. And even if you have insurance, GoodRx may actually beat your copay price. You can check GoodRx online or their app, which just happens to be one of the most downloaded medical apps ever. From there, you can find prescription savings at over 70,000 Reza, 70,000 pharmacies nationwide, like CVS, Kroger, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Vons, Walmart, many, 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 many more. You know, I, I've said this before. I have excellent insurance. I am a, an, a, a, an employee of the University of California. I got that like, I got that like pension. I got like the the kind of insurance that Chrysler workers in the 50s had. Like that's the kind of insurance that I have. Impressive. And even then, GoodRx beat the price of one of my prescriptions. Even then, for simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash milkshake. That's goodrx, the two letters, dot com slash milkshake, goodrx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used in place of insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid. In 2021, in fact, GoodRx users saved 81% on retail prescription prices. So so you can develop these kind of more advanced or quote-unquote higher uh, aspects of the brain. They, They can be exercised, like going to the gym, kind of? Maybe. Well, absolutely. And so, you know, some of the work that my myself and my colleagues have done, as well as a few others, have actually documented 
the changes that occur in the brain as a result of doing these practices. So for example, we studied people initially, and then we sent them through a meditation, a very simple meditation program. It was called Kirtan Kriya, and you just have to repeat certain phrases. It's very concentrative. And they did it for 12 minutes a day for eight weeks. And when they came back, their frontal lobes were more active just at baseline, not while they were doing the practice, but just at rest, their frontal lobes were more active and it was consistent with improvements in their concentrative abilities. Um, Other people have found some studies, which are really interesting as well, that have shown that those people who are long-term meditators literally have thicker frontal lobes than those people who don't. And wow. so, as you know, to take your analogy very literally, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, well, but you know, just like a muscle, um, the you know, the more you use it, the more active it becomes, and actually, the bigger it becomes. The neurons and 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 the brain itself becomes bigger and appears to be associated with improved concentration, improved function. So, so absolutely, you know, you can train your brain. We we've seen other studies that show evidence of this training effect. Um, that the more you do it. Uh, the more it has an impact on the way your brain functions. And one last thing to say about that particular thing is that, you know, if you want to get really good at playing the violin, well, you're going to, you have to practice the violin. You don't practice the flute. You got to practice the violin. So there are specific ways of training the brain. On the other hand, there are other ways of developing general functions. So for example, uh, you know, maybe exercising is something that is good no matter what you want to do, you know, whether you want to become a good athlete or a good musician, you know, you got to be in good shape. So, you know, learning to develop your muscles, learning to become more aerobically, you know, by taking walks or jogging, you know, those are general things that can be good for us no matter what we're trying to focus on. And to some degree, spiritual practices seem to be of that ilk, you know, that that they kind of generally help the brain, even though they don't necessarily make us better at doing crossword puzzles per se, but if you learn how to do crossword puzzles and on top of that, you're, you're doing meditation, you're probably going to, you know, that's going to augment the way in which your, your brain is functioning. Uh, can we bring it back to drugs for a moment? Absolutely. Let's, 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 let's talk yeah. about drugs for a minute. I mean, <laughs> let's do drugs. All, all joking aside, I mean, our most ancient religious texts mention the use of mind-altering substances. Uh, in, in the Vedas, it's called Soma. In the Avesta, it's called Homa. We've gone into caves that are 40,000, 50,000 years old and have seen uh, fairly clear evidence um, of, herb. of, yeah, well, of altered states, you know, how right. those altered, we, we're not exactly sure how mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. achieved those altered states, but very clear that altered states was part of whatever was going on. But I guess my, my question to you is, how much of the sort of unlocking of this potential that exists within the brains can legitimately involve the use of drugs? I'm, I'm asking for a friend. when you talk about psychedelic experiences this is a very important part of neurotheology research and scholarship for several reasons Um, one is uh, that we know where these drugs go so for example we know that psilocybin and a lot of the psychedelic drugs actually affect the serotonin system in the brain the, the, the chemical the neurotransmitter serotonin and so you know it's not just enough to say that the frontal lobes turn on or the parietal lobes turn off but some of the work that we've been doing has been leading more and more 
more to understanding not only what areas of the brain are involved, but how they get involved. And so these neurotransmitter studies and psychedelics really help us to understand that. Now, you know, that being said, we also want to look at what the experiences are like. And actually, in a survey that we have run uh, over the last 10 years, where we've asked people about their most intense spiritual experiences, and we've gotten a couple thousand responses to that, we looked at those experiences that were had under the influence of a psychedelic versus those that were more, you know, non-pharmacological or more natural, so to say, if you want to use that term. And there is a great deal of equivalency in terms of the intensity, in terms of the power, in terms of the meaning, and even in terms of the spirituality. And other investigators have seen the same kind of thing. So, so I think, uh, you know, again, there's always kind of a good and a bad, but, but for the, you know, under the right circumstances, for the right kind of person, the ability to utilize these kinds of substances as a way of getting the brain to experience something very powerful, very important, very meaningful, um, there's a lot of evidence to support that, and it helps us to understand the physiological basis of that so that we can you know, use this kind of neurotheological research to understand even more how our brain becomes religious and spiritual. But speaking as someone who's had some addiction issues in my past, I want to also bring up, uh, and this may be obvious, you can't get addicted to meditation. I guess maybe you can, but <laughs> I have a cousin who is microdosing acid for several years and it started as like religious experimentation and meanwhile he's he's fried and he's living in a motel room in Yakima so it's uh it didn't work out so well for him right that path and it's something to be cautious about absolutely you know nothing is perfect and everything has potential problems for different kinds of people and that's why we have to be very cautious about saying oh yeah everybody should take you know psilocybin or, or something um, because there are times where it can go bad it can be problematic it can lead to addictions so again you know that, that to me that from, from a neurotheological perspective one of the real exciting parts of this research going forward is to look at the good and the bad so it, you know while we can talk about how religion and spirituality are generally good for people which I think, as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of research to support that's the case, but there are times where it goes wrong and goes bad, and, and we need to learn about that too. Okay, so let's say I'm walking down the street and I'm having this profound religious experience, um, and I'm seeing colors and experiencing, like, oneness with, with all things. But then it turns out I just have, like, a brain tumor. I'm pretty sure this is a stroke. You just described a stroke. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> so it's possible to go, go the other way, too, right? Like, to have things affect your brain that just fool you into thinking you're having some kind of religious experience. So, well, absolutely that, you know, this is another part of neurotheology research, which is, you know, we talked about drugs, we talked about practices like meditation. Now there's the whole sort of neurological, psych psychiatric scenario of things. I mean, uh, there are interesting studies that have looked at people who have uh, various um, uh, injuries to the brain, tumors, and so forth. And they have found, for example, that those people who have some kind of abnormality in the parietal lobe are actually more likely to express feelings of self-transcendence than those people who have uh, abnormalities, tumors in the frontal lobe. So, you know, if we talk about the parietal lobe as being involved in that spatial representation of the self and that sense of self, it makes a lot of sense that if that area is disrupted, that you are more likely to have an experience of the loss of self and, and that kind of spatial uh, experience. There was a, a, a woman named Jill Bolte-Taylor who wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight, who had a stroke in the left hemisphere of her brain and 
developed a mystical experience. And so, you know, that those are there's a whole other piece of knowledge and information that we have to understand the relationship between the brain and these experiences. And so it gives us something to look at, something to learn about. Now, you know, again, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get metaphysical on you guys for a second. Um, what does this mean? You know, is it possible that through drugs or through, you know, the effect of a tumor that our brain winds up operating on a level that we are able to perceive the world in ways that are different than what we do in our normal everyday life. I mean, in our everyday life, I can't see the ultraviolet or I can't, you know, I, I can't see radio waves unless I got a radio. Um, but what would happen if your brain... Yeah. But they exist. And what would happen if my brain changed in such a way that suddenly I can see things that I wouldn't be able to see before or hear things that I wouldn't be able to see before? Um, now, again, I mean, I'm not saying that that You're is what happens. describing a science but, fiction film that I would go see on the opening weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But yeah, you know, th those are the kinds of things that we have to be careful about exactly what we conclude uh -huh. just simply because somebody who's got uh, a brain tumor sees the world differently. We don't know exactly what that means in terms of the actual nature of reality. And that question about where the real reality is, that to me is the fundamental question that has driven all of my interest in this field and what drives the field of neurotheology. So in other words, it's not exactly, it, it, it would be incorrect to call it a malfunction necessarily. Right, exactly. Um, it could just be a sort of a jumpstart, you know, of how the, the brain, um, of what the brain can be capable of, in other words. Exactly. All right, let's get deep, shall we? Let's let's <laughs> sure. move from the physical to the metaphysical. Okay, we are now at a place where we can say with a fair measure of confidence that whatever the spiritual experience is, it's a neurological phenomenon. It exists in our brains. It's part of our normal cognitive processes. That means it exists in everybody's brain. It must have evolved alongside of us. We don't know exactly why. There are a lot of ideas. I know you have ideas why. Maybe it's because sure. of our pattern recognition. Maybe it's because of our propensity to find agency You know, in natural phenomena. Maybe it has to do with theory of mind, whatever. But the why, right. forget about that. Let's just move that aside for a minute. But what is a fact is that this is an ability that exists in every human being uh, from, you know, the, the earliest stages of our evolution that very likely, actually, there's an enormous amount of archaeological uh, evidence to indicate that this is an ability that existed in previous human uh, species, not just in Homo right, sapiens, Neanderthals. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. Doesn't that mean that we're meant to be spiritual beings? I mean, doesn't that mean that this is how we are supposed to be? If we're wired that way? I mean, we saying? are literally wired this way. We've always been wired this way, not just our species, but previous species of, of humans. This is an elemental part of the human condition. Yes? Right. I mean, that, you know, uh, that's why I wrote the book, Why God Won't Go Away. You know, that, that it's something so we that is so— We are spiritual beings. We are just spiritual beings. It's something that's a part of us. Yes, exactly. 
Now, you know, again, you can get into the why, and obviously if you're religious, you'd say, well, of course we're like that because there's God, and that's why, you know, it makes sense that we would be built that way. Um, you know, and as you said, even if you're an evolutionary biologist, uh, there's something about being spiritual, about being religious, about having these making these kinds of connections, having these kinds of feelings that does seem to match up very well with what our brain is designed to do to help us and, uh, and how we work as human beings. So I would agree that it is a fundamental piece piece of who we are. And, and as you said, the, the archaeological and anthropological evidence points to that as well. Okay. So then I guess what I'm trying to get to at a metaphysical level, at an existential level, is that the logical conclusion seems to me that the life to its fullest iteration as a human involves, almost necessarily so, the spiritual aspect, mm. right? That not, that denying that aspect is denying the most basic function of, of your humanity. brain. Yeah, I think the point is well taken, and you know certainly. Um, you know, an atheist, for example, might say they don't feel that kind of thing. And, um, you know, part of my answer to that is that, you know, even though they may not necessarily find religion uh, or something yeah, that we might identify. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or or spiritual or something spiritual uh, as fundamental to who they are. Um, most people, even those people who are highly materialistic, will turn to music or nature or you know some activity they're that, seeking that gives transcendence. them. They're they're seeking something. They're seeking some kind of understanding, some greater knowledge, some greater connection. Um, they just don't call it the same thing. And so um, you know, I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, arguably speaking, I mean, no matter what. Uh, function of humanity or, or of human beings you're talking about, uh, there's there's a bell curve. You know, there's always going to be some people who are going to be more drawn to something rather than less. I mean, as you were talking about that question, I was thinking about sex. I mean, obviously, sex is fundamental to the human condition. I mean, we got to have sex in order for the species to survive, but we don't have to have sex. I mean, you can go through your whole life and not have sex if you really, you know, I mean, there's a way to do that. But, uh, but you know, it, it's it's not, quote unquote, sort of the natural way of being. The natural way of being is to want to procreate and want to have sex. And and that's part of, you know, we were built with the hormones and the drives and all that to, to make all that happen. So so I think in a similar kind of way, yes, I mean, you know, we we all have that that interest. We all have the, the brain that wants to seek answers to the big questions. Uh, you know, an atheist has come to a different conclusion about the nature of the world. They've come to the conclusion that there isn't a God versus someone who's come to the conclusion that there is one. Um, they're they're looking at the universe. They're looking at data. They're looking at information. They're thinking about things, and that's all part of this process. It's sort of how the brain engages the world around us to try to understand it and try to understand our relationship to that world. And so, I do think it's still a fundamental part of who we are. But we all do find different ways of of going at it, and and that's I think how to address that kind of question. So just a, a really technical question. I'm just calling on your years of expertise. Okay. My mom, during the hippie days, dropped acid when I was in utero. How did that oh fuck God. up my brain? That explains everything. Right? <laughs> right? What happened? Well, I wish I could tell you In for my sure. giant brain from that 
horrific. Probably if it was a one-time thing, it probably didn't have too much of an effect. You know, the, the, the problem always is, is that there's just so many things that affect who we are. And you were probably far more affected by the ways in which you were raised than by, you know, having her drop acid while you were in utero there. But, um, but you know what? I mean, it could have, and it also depends on when, you know, and how early and how much development there already is. Um, but, but, you know, even when we were going back, when we were talking about drug induced states, you know, certainly when, when people who are younger are doing drugs like marijuana and so forth, it really does, you know, change the way their brain is functioning as it's developing. And so we do have to be careful about that, but, but everything influences us and, and, you know, whether it's our parents, our teachers, our, our friends, our own personal experiences with different things, um, the world around us, you know, uh, I mean, that's the brain is constantly in just this perpetual interaction and uh, you know we, we put something out there it comes back and then we keep going with it and uh, and it really it, it it's quite remarkable you know how how all of us uh, develop individually and and again that that's part of what I really have come to appreciate is that each one of us you know each of our brains is kind of in the same boat we're looking at the world we're we're looking at an infinite world using point you know zero 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 one percent of information about that world and yet somehow our brain tells us we got it all figured out right and, uh, well said you know <laughs> and which which again you know hopefully people you know that's part of what we try to teach people is let's not all be quite so certain of what we think we're so certain about because um uh, our brain is really just doing the best job it can, and we come to conclusions that kind of work for each one of us. But um, but we are very limited in what we can ultimately know about the world, and and maybe we got to work together a little bit better to help each other figure it out. Best episode ever. Okay, lightning round. Let's do the lightning round. Uh-oh. Shall we? I didn't know there was a Andrew, lightning round. You ready for this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is Go where for we it. really test your brain functionings. Ready? Okay. When do you feel most connected with the universe? Um, I feel most connected with the universe when I am doing my own philosophical meditation, uh, searching for the answer to these questions. What do you want your deathbed to look like? Physically or? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, physically. What do you, what um, did you think? Spiritually? I, well, I don't know. <laughs> Not metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I would want it to be simple. Um, you know, uh, to me, you know, I'm part of the universe. And so I guess just a simple burial to let all of my cells and molecules just go back to everything else and come back up in the next thing. Uh, describe your soul in 10 words or less. Ooh. Uh, I would describe my soul as someone who continues to strive to ask questions and find knowledge in as unbiased a way as possible. That's good. What's one thing you know for sure? Uh, That I don't know anything for sure. What is your biggest fear? My biggest fear? Um, I guess my biggest fear is... um, is 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 failure that I could have stopped. If it's something that I could have done something about to prevent the failure. I don't mind failing, but if it's something I could have prevented, then that I don't like that. <laughs> Assuming there's a heaven, what does heaven look like? 
Um, I've always sort of thought that if there's a heaven, it's it's just kind of being part of the universe and and being able to go all over the world, all over the universe, to be able to see the incredible grandeur of it. And finally, what is your life's big question? The life's big question, I think, is actually my easiest one to answer, which is, what is the nature of reality, and how do we get to know it? Hmm, I like that. That could be the question of our entire podcast series. What is the nature of reality? And And how how do we get to know it? How do we get to know it? How do we witness it? How do we get to know what is real? Yep. Mm. How do we get to know what Mm. is real? Delicious. That's what drives everything I do. Dr. Andrew (laughs) Newberg, thank you so much for joining us. This was super, super fascinating. Uh, Can I call you a neurotheologian? Can I call you that? Absolutely. Yeah, all right. Absolutely. Neurotheologian, Andrew Newberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, uh, easily one of my top three favorite episodes. Top three? Top three, easily. I'd say top seven. I don't know about three. Yeah. But that's good. You really, good. You, you miss Alua. That was, you, you You bring her up all the time. I love Alua. I loved her yeah, too. She yeah, was pretty awesome. Amazing. But insofar as uh, podcasts about religiosity in the brain, yep. top two. Yeah, absolutely. No question. <laughs> no question. Uh yeah, really unbelievable. Uh, I really resonated with a lot of what he said, and I, I I certainly appreciated his humility about not having any kind of certainty about uh, any of this, mm-hmm. you know? Can you have a spiritual experience, and it's just some neurons firing in the front of your brain or your parietal lobe, um, or is it uh, really actually happening? We didn't actually, and this is what I love about doing this show with you, is we, we, we didn't get any answers. No. We no. just shed some light on an on a fascinating issue, one that he's spent his entire life researching. Even the most basic fact, this idea that spirituality is a neurological phenomenon, I mean, that's a fact. But even then, he wasn't willing to say that it existed only in the brain. Yeah. He was like, well, maybe actually the brain is just latching on to a thing that exists out there onto it yeah and that's what it that's what the brain's actually doing it's not it's not in other words uh creating the experience it's tapping into a thing a real thing which is you know it's it's refreshing to hear a scientist that open about the possibility of a thing being out there he's open to all yeah. all possibilities and i love that idea too of like what is real and I, I do think about that a lot. Like, mm-hmm. What is real? What is reality? Because we're we're kind of wired to believe and kind of culturally uh, programmed to believe like what is real is the material stuff in front of us mm-hmm. and dealing with that next thing, that next email we need to return or the text we need to return or the next job um, difficulty that lies in front of us. But, but what is really real and how can you see with eyes kind of bigger than our material eyes? I know I'm, I'm sounding a little bit vague and hippie-ish right now, but there's a spiritual reality, I believe, that goes hand in hand with the material reality. I can't really say, like, oh, the spiritual stuff's over here and, and the material stuff's over here. They're, they're linked, they're connected. And how can I really be attuned to uh, both things at the same time. Does that make any sense? No, it does. It does. I think that was kind of what I was going for when I was talking about how that, you know, whether it's deliberate or by accident or evolutionarily or not, that we are just 
um, made to be like this, that we're made to to think in these terms. We're wired you know, for the that profound. That we're wired for the profound, yeah, yeah. For, for transcendence. For divinity. So, yeah. Um, it, what do you think, dear listeners? What do you think about all this? You know, uh, you can find us on social at Reza Aslan, at Rain Wilson, hashtag metaphysical. Tell us what your brain is on these days. Is it religion, spirituality, drugs? Where do you find God? How does it all connect? And uh, I would especially like to hear from you, uh, you know, sort of self-identified atheists, um, people who might be kind of offended by the idea that our brains are designed for spiritual experiences. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, does that does that challenge what you think? Or do you just feel like, well, yeah, but it's still a choice whether you want to explore those experiences Was this all not? a bunch of poppycock? Yes. Thank you again to our guest today, neurotheologian Dr. Andrew Newberg. I'm going to call myself that from now on. I think that that would be a good title for you. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yaz, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Metaphysical Milkshake is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Cradwell, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. Original music by Jeff Tang and Scott Tang. The latest study I'm working on is on the relationship between sexuality and spirituality. So There we go. Oh, that's oh, right nice. up Rose's alley. Uh, now you got my attention. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs>